when we look at this model, um, we can, it allows us to expand to see that there's actually a lot of, uh, a lot of systems interacting. So racism can expand on, you know, individual and interpersonal levels, yes, but also institutional community and within public policy. And when we have this kind of lens, it helps us to better understand the problem so that we don't just you know, say, saying this person is racist, this person is racist, that doesn't really help us get anywhere. But if we look at how does this institution contribute to, you know, these kinds of racist ideas, how does public policy uh, perpetuate racism, then we can affect more change. And so this model can help to discuss some social issues as well. This is the Public Health Insight Podcast. Before we move on, it is important to note that the views expressed in this podcast are our own and do not represent any of the organizations we work for or are affiliated with. In the previous episode, we provided an overview on the historical context of socio-ecological models and broke down the various levels of influence. In this episode, we'll shift our discussion to highlight how this model can be applied to public health practice using our current jobs and interests as examples. This is where we left off. Ecological approaches to public health typically focus on intervening at multiple levels of influence to amplify the protective factors while minimizing the risk factors when we talk about the social determinants of health. And this occurs at the individual and the population levels. We've highlighted the history of the socio-ecological model and the various uh, levels of it, so the spheres of influence, um, but we're going to transition this discussion to talk um, about perhaps the most important part of the socio-ecological model and that is applying it to public health practice. Mm-hmm. So a model is only as good as the persons that are applying it and the way in which it is used. So what? why are these population health models used in public health? Why, why are we even talking about the socio-ecological model? I think that it's a great first step to first understand the problem that we're looking at. And in public health, health, it's complex. And you know, historically, we, uh, like we mentioned before, we've seen health defined as only a biological thing. So these models, like the socio-ecological model, I think it's great because it allows us to visually see that there are a lot more interactions going on than previously thought. Um, and so when we don't use these types of models in our understanding and planning, we run the risk of having very, like, nearsighted vision of a problem then our our um, interventions don't land as far. They don't meet the goals we're aiming to meet. So I think it helps to plan, conceptualize, and then make uh, interventions that better meet the needs of the population. Yeah, absolutely. And I think even the visual representation of, if we're specifically talking about the socio-ecological model, it kind of you know promotes thinking of that upstream um, thinking approach where you're, okay, maybe the problem you think is at the individual level, but let's also consider these things and hey, you might make a connection to see how different things are interrelated. And that um, allows you to ultimately plan more effective interventions and be able to evaluate the different interventions that you have to see if it has your desired effect. Yeah, and the key piece there about it, the model helps you to understand why something might work and it also helps you to understand why an intervention may not work. So. Uh, as an example, you're in charge of leading a healthy eating food program, and then you decide that your best course of action, the low-hanging fruit, get a bunch of funding um, in a community, give them coupons to go to a grocery store. 
and then you do a evaluation maybe a month later you realize that people are still eating fast food and you're like hey i gave you guys i thought money was what you needed to to get the food so that you can cook it and then feed it to your family but what that person neglected is that how close are these um, grocery stores how accessible is public transportation do these individuals have um you know literacy to to make the f- healthy foods in a way that mm-hmm. you know that's tasteful and that their family will eat it and then in terms of their work schedule are they able to go to a grocery store while it's open what if they work um you know different shifts that don't allow them to get to those stores so that's why this understanding uh, the socio-ecological model or, or other frameworks for understanding health behavior is very important so with that said we talked a good game we sound like we know what we're talking about with the model but how does the socio-ecological model apply to you know either your previous uh line of work or your current line of work in public health um, so previously I worked in suicide prevention and in health promotion. Um, and so this model was used a lot in deciding, you know, how do you best um, apply suicide prevention to a population? Which population are we looking at? Are we focusing just on individual behaviors or like their interpersonal or even at the public policy level? Um, so eventually in my previous role, we focused at suicide prevention at the institutional level and so instead of trying to target all of these levels we targeted specifically organizational um, like occupational practices and how to make a workplace more um, a workplace um, just more safe in regards to suicide prevention and so um, yeah we just tailored it to one institutional level yeah I can relate to that too in my suicide prevention work um, thinking about it now I would say there is a lot of effort at the interpersonal level because when we're putting out messaging, health promotion messaging around suicide prevention, we often talk about being able to recognize the warning signs of, of suicide and intervene if there's warning signs. So who is that really targeted to? Is it the person experiencing distress? Not really. It's the, um, the people in their relationships, their social networks. We're trying to give them the self-efficacy to be able to recognize when something is not right and be able to intervene. So that's a great example. Yeah, in my in my experience, um, I would say most of my work is done at the, the, at the outermost sphere, which is the, the policy or the societal level. Um, you know, I think I've mentioned many times working in global health policy, um, it's at, at, at least for the kind of work that I do, it's mostly around um, it's the foreign affairs aspect of things and kind of for countries to kind of to agree together, um, especially at these multilateral institutions and being able to come to a f- find agreed upon language and you know, coming up with resolutions and plans of actions. And although these documents are often non, non-binding, which, you know, you can't really have them and be binding because there is really no way to enforce it. Um, that being said, I think it's it's a good step forward to at least have a whether it's regional or global almost um, action plan or um, goal to 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 work towards and it creates the political climate and creates the the environment i guess the the political environment um, in, in quotations here um for more uptake and yeah more uptake for um health related or 
public health focused interventions so, so that it will eventually trickle down from the po policy level down to the community uh, and eventually into individual level. The other point that I'd like to mention, and it's, I think, I, I don't know if I, I mentioned this to Linda when, when we were doing our practicum together, but um, I think I found that the socio-ecological model to be a really good tool for applying and um, working to influence, be, I guess, behavioral change, and whether this is in an organization or in a um, smaller community. But um, I found that, so at least for me, with my practicum, I tried to um, apply this this model to um, in our organization so that you know we can kind of have a greater uptake in um, an initiative, right? And you know, this initiative, although it wasn't health related, it had many of the same components as any health promotion program you know you have you have your focus on trying to um, foster um, self-efficacy and knowledge component teaching the individuals why it's important and why this initiative is good for the for the organization as well as um, you know how it can help the individual improve their work and then um, all the way up to, I would say, the, the societal level. And in this case, in, in an organization sense, it would be how this initiative can influence the organization and help the organization do work better in a more effective manner. So, yeah, I think it's a, it's a definitely a very um, fluid model that can you, you can take aspects of it and really apply it to many um, different areas in public health or even just in non-public health work. And I think um, if, you know, that can be, probably be safe for another discussion, but seeing how this model can be applied to in, so applied for other disciplines, uh, that would be interesting um, research or some, something to look into. I want to talk a bit about my work that I do on neglected tropical diseases, which is a group of 20 different diseases um, that include viruses, bacteria, and parasitic worms. And specifically, I'd like to talk about uh, drug distribution for those diseases. So for some of those diseases, um, an issue is around drug access and availability and how it's distributed within different endemic communities. And specific to that, um, if we apply the socio-ecological model to that, at the individual level, there are many factors of um, why or why not an individual would choose to consume a drug. So maybe there's different factors about not knowing what these drugs are. If you have individuals from a different country coming to give you a drug and say it'll cure you from X disease, um, are they inclined to do so? Um, do they have the knowledge um, and experience with these drugs? That's a factor. There's also factors um, in terms of cultural components, so interpersonal relationships. What is the culture within that family? Um, what are the different norms um, within that, um, that household? Do they, uh, do they favor taking these drugs? Do they not see value in it? And that will inf influence individual decisions. And then we get to more of the institutional slash organizational aspect of distribution. Um, typically, um, NGOs are distributing these or, you know, governmental organizations are distributing these drugs. Um, what is their process of this? How do they make sure there's accessibility to all the different communities, whether it's the urban or rural environments? And what are the policies? Um, what, what kind of policies do they have in place? Like, are you going to be distributing these drugs at a time that's most convenient for um, the individuals that are supposed to be receiving these drugs or are you doing it at a time convenient for you? I um, mean, then I guess the more 
um, community aspect of this. So what is the overall community perception and the community norms around taking these drugs? Are there stigmas towards taking these drugs? So that's kind of that aspect of it, as well as transportation. If you're going to these places where these drugs are being distributed, do you have access to transportation to get there? So um, I'm just kind of reflecting on these different um, spheres of influence as we talk about this, but I guess the last level would be that policy level. So at the government level of these different countries that are distributing these drugs for neglected tropical diseases, um, is it done so in an equitable way? Are there people being left behind? Um, these are different aspects that I'm just thinking about right now. Of course, there's a lot more to think about it, and a lot more nuances. Public funding for it, and that people don't have to pay out of pocket as well. That's exactly. Or is there even history of um, maltreatment, or you know, historical mm-hmm. abuses of power, where people are rightful mm-hmm. to not trust this medication? Um, that could also influence. I don't know where that would fall. Perhaps under policy, community, but mm-hmm. yeah, and I think it plays a huge role in community because if there is an adverse event, individuals mm-hmm. are going to be talking about it and it's going to change people's and the community's perception on a drug and they may be very resistant towards um, consuming these drugs. But perhaps if, if this lens is not taken, someone might say, oh, people just don't know enough, so they'll only focus on individual, whereas there are other influences that you have stated that would um, impact the uptake of the drug in the community, so that's a really ding. good example. That's the well, whole point. Well, well. <laughs> That's the whole point of what we're trying to talk about. Mm-hmm. Why is this not working? Oh, perhaps there's other things you didn't right. consider. That's right. literally what we're talking about. I guess the whole thing with this, when we're talking about the socio-ecological model, and I, I think we're trying to talk about the benefits as well in a sense, I think it's very important to consider this model in a sense in order to consider the context because as you get through these different levels you learn more and more about the context of the situation or the specific issue that you're dealing with which will help you make a more holistic and broad decision as you could tell from the different experiences that we're sharing there's so many different factors that can influence a a certain outcome so we talked about how we apply this model in practice in our daily work Um, but what we also have um, interests and passions external to what we do in our everyday work currently so how can this model be applied to address some of those public health issues that you're most passionate about and things like urban planning mental health LaShawn talked about neglected tropical diseases yeah i think you know (laughs) (laughs) this this model especially um that was the the broadness and the the interdisciplinary kind of angle of it really allows for, as you mentioned, Gordon, earlier, the, those health and all policy discussions, right? Um, and I'm sure as, as you all know, and hope uh, maybe some of our listeners have kind of gotten, um, you know, the hint now that I, I'm very passionate about urban planning, but more so urban planning's connection with public health and how at the core, you know, in both disciplines, you are essentially focusing on improving and, yeah, improving and maintaining better health and well-being for all. Right. And I think it really comes down to, um, you know, when you're talking about health, like what what is what is health and like what makes like what it what makes good health. And it's 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 beyond just, um, you know, being physically healthy, but it's also kind of mentally, um, you know, I meant being mentally well, um, you know, having those social connections and those social support systems and um, things like that. And so I think when you are looking to really apply and um, connect public health with urban planning. This social socio ecological model really becomes a very useful framework and tool to 
kind of draw those connections because you know as we said there's the individual level um interpersonal level you have your um, organizational community and and societal Um, all these levels if you kind of um look at how a community is planned and you know how how um i guess things like the built environment or um, even just planning policies social planning policies um, affect um, overall health you you can look at it at you know at the individual level um like um how say how 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 income levels are affected um, and then you move all the way up to to their societal levels and how um, you know the way certain um you know, certain certain zoning laws or um, like restrictions or things like that um affect the community I think also this model was really helpful for me when discussing topics like racism because um, it, it helps to expand what how we normally think about racism as, you know, it's just individual and interpersonal. And then that causes a lot of animosity and there's a lot of, you know, conflict because it's like, oh, you're saying I'm a hateful person. But when we look at this model, um, we can it allows us to expand to see that there's actually a lot of... Uh, a lot of systems interacting so racism can expand on you know individual and interpersonal levels yes but also institutional community and within public policy and when we have this kind of lens it helps us to better understand the problem so that we don't just you know say saying this person is racist this person is racist that doesn't really help us get anywhere but if we look at how does this institution contribute to you know these kinds of racist ideas how does public policy uh, perpetuate racism, then we can affect more change. And so this model can help to discuss some social issues as well. That's a fantastic point. And I, I've thought about it, but I haven't really thought about it. If you know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. there is when we, we always talk about, inst- like you said, individual and maybe institutional racism, but what are interpersonal, like your own, there's issues in your own family. There's issues in your own community. And then like at the policy level, there's discrimination. Right. So that's a, that's a great mm-hmm. point. That's a great outlook. So we, we've talked about, a lot of the strengths of these this model the socio-ecological model the benefits in terms of public health and addressing uh, public health related issues global health related issues and understanding um, why interventions may or may not work to address those public health issues but what are some challenges of the underlying concepts in the framework if any and what are some challenges you've experienced while using the model I think right off the bat, a challenge is that this is just a model. It's a framework. It's a theory. Um, so it helps us to understand the problem. But then if, if, if you don't take it a step further, it's very limited. Um, and, you know, for a practical example, our resources are limited. And so this model is great to show what we could do if we had infinite resources. But, you know, in most cases, we cannot act on each level of influence. Um, and I think a weakness of in this model is it doesn't allow for you to prioritize which level of influence may be the most effective if you can only choose one. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I don't know how that could be added, maybe some sort of prioritizing measure, a scale, if that's even effective, I don't know. Um, but it's definitely a weakness. The effectiveness of the model used in public health practice is, is, is um, based on the competency of that um, public health practitioner using that model. So, and that ties into my point because I think the model is more, um, it tells you, it it very, it gets deep down into how, um, 
giving you a framework to understand the context of population level behavior and population health outcomes there's less of um, knowledge in it in terms of the how so how so now that so believe um, and if you're talking about the individual level sphere of influence we talk about skills knowledge self-efficacy that's great but it doesn't tell us how to go about addressing those what strategies are needed or what strategies are most effective at those levels i know that there's lately there's been things popping up of um reframing the socio-ecological model in terms of um effective interventions and that is helpful but in its in its basic form it doesn't really tell you how to address um those how to overcome those population um level health outcomes that are embedded within these spheres of influence i also think to actually look at the specific model at hand i think the the perspective should be is this model easily understandable the way it's presented so does it look complex is it complex or is it easy like is the fact that there's five different levels and there's all these circles around it is that confusing and does it is it off-putting so i think in terms of that um that's a that's a different story a final critique from my end is well not really critique it's more of a caution for the social socio-ecological model and it's you know drawing from the social sciences it's that um, every population regardless of how similar they may seem have their own indip- individual nuances and contexts and i th- i think when using something like the socio ecological model um and with all these five different spheres and oftentimes a lot of these um, you know um spheres might be very similar for two populations it's very easy to just um almost be like ah okay whatever mm-hmm. it's they're probably the same um and just consider them to be almost the same almost the same um population so i think a caution is that you really need to analyze each each sphere and ensure that whatever population you are working with you are accounting for all their um you know uniqueness and nuances so that um, this 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 tool is used properly rather than because i think it's it there really is a risk of um kind of just um thinking the population are the same and just almost mm-hmm. um copy and pasting let's say um, the community uh, level spheres to be the same but maybe it's not maybe there are very minute differences that need to be accounted for to cap off will's point if we're looking at this socio-ecological model in terms of the seven billion people that are on earth who might miss a lot of things now if we say black communities in ontario we might be able to pick up more things than we would have if we were just applying it in the in the broader context. So there has to be some understanding of the uniqueness and individual nuances within different populations themselves and then applying that model um to those populations. Yeah, it's a, it's a very good example because it's like if you do just humanity mm-hmm. and it's like what like what are humanity's you know community needs versus right. what are um the needs of um you know newly immigrant um east asian you know right people in southwestern ontario then you have your very spe- specific um almost indicators that you're you're basing your um decisions and you know things on yeah yeah that's the importance of defining i guess scope yes. at the beginning and planning and making the sure that population. the target yes. population is um correctly chosen mm-hmm. and like this is a good first step but it shouldn't be the mm-hmm. only thing you do right 
Yeah, absolutely. And I, I guess that goes um, to say as well, um, you probably need a collaborative approach when using this model because it's not. It shouldn't just be one person's perspective um, being brought onto this model. It should be a community effort or the different stakeholders that are involved in whatever project. For sure. This was our discussion about why the sociological model has been widely adopted in public health practice, how it applies to our current work, and some strengths and weaknesses of the model. Join us in the next episode as we apply the sociological model to the real-world example of COVID-19. My name is Gordon, your host for this episode, signing off. Thank you for listening to the Public Health Insight Podcast, your go-to space for informative conversations, inspiring community action. If you enjoy our content and would like to stay up to date, follow us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. To learn more about our community initiatives and how you can support us, visit our website at thepublichealthinsight.com. Join the PHI community and let's make public health viral.